If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drimple. You're having breakfast? Got any cornflakes? Do we have to have any kind of coffee? No no posh muesli this time. No muesli, no (laughs) granola. Okay, just checking because we just want to make sure whether we can identify any of the slurs. I have had breakfast. I had a very nice almond croissant. I don't don't get those in Delhi. Public demands to know. Do not laugh, special guest, yet. You've not been introduced and you'll only encourage him. Uh, Listen, uh, we are delighted. Today is going to be a really very um, fascinating episode of Empire. Most people listening to this, most people in Britain and indeed, you know, in the world will know the name of of Samuel Johnson, famous essayist, playwright, lexicographer, biographer, critic, man about town. Um, They call him arguably the most distinguished man of letters that England has ever produced. So people know about Samuel Johnson, but what they don't know perhaps is about one man who figured large in Johnson's life. And he is the man we are talking about today, isn't he, William? Who are we talking about? Absolutely is. Francis Barber, who I'm ashamed to say, having taken an interest in Johnson all my life and having very recently, when I was in the Hebrides last week, read the journal uh, of his journey with Boswell to the Hebrides, I had no idea existed. Uh, Although having now uh, read and researched him for this thing, of course, we know the, the probable picture of him by Reynolds, which is enormously familiar. And he's like this sort of unspoken presence that threads through so many familiar stories. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned you were reading Boswell and and we're going to come to this. I'm going to introduce our special guest who sort of like l- l- has already giggled. You know, you know him by giggle, <laughs> but we're going to introduce him by name any second now. But but Boswell, well, let's introduce our guest, actually. It's, it's high time, isn't it? Uh, welcome to Empire, Peter Moore. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. In, in my case, this is a return favour as we met originally on a podcast uh, when my anarchy came out and you very sweetly interviewed me for that. Yeah, yeah. That was 1764. So chronologically, we're oh, in God, a similar place. you're older place. than you look. You did that podcast <laughs> in 1764. You're wearing it lightly. <laughs> we went back to the year 1764 to talk about what the East India Company were up to in India. And this was actually in 2019, if I remember correctly. Right. Okay. Well, we, we like to straighten all this out. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you then sent me a copy of your book, Endeavour, which was one of my favourite books. I chose instantly as, as, as my book of the year, an extraordinary biography of the ship Endeavour from an acorn uh, to a wreck, uh, which is just the most brilliant way of, of, of tackling Great Sweets favour, but with the focus obviously being on Captain Cook and the whole discovery of America and, and a walk-on part for my forebear, Alexander de Rimple, who you treat very nicely. He's normally regarded as a grumpy old sod. Well, Dalrymple, um, yeah, I thought it might appeal to you, this reading, this reading of him. He... Um, 
And I was looking back at my notes from that book and I found a line which said that uh, maybe the person who named Endeavour Endeavour, because there was a shifting in name throughout the ship's life, it was originally called the Earl of Pembroke turned into an endeavour before it went off on that voyage. I reckon that Alexander Dalrymple is a prime candidate for the uh, selector of the name Endeavour. And because he also mapped out the parameters of the voyage to some extent, you should, uh, I suppose, look back a little bit fondly on your forebear. We've always believed in the family that he was the guy that really discovered Australia, but uh, you don't quite take it that far in your book. <laughs> we should explain who he is. Just quick, actually, we never go down rabbit holes ever on this on this program. <laughs> we just have to give a quick shout out to Alexander Dribble. The yeah. one minute Alexander Dribble sketch, please, Peter Moore. All right, okay. Alexander Dalrymple was perfectly enough um, in the employ of the East India Company as a young man. Went he off was. And he was full of ambition and the impulses of the Enlightenment. And I think he uh, went to Madras, if I remember correctly, and Correct. he was working there in a very junior position. But his handwriting wasn't very good, so he could not progress. I'm not sure if this is still a problem for the Dalrymples today. <laughs> but he he had this notion that there was a great big landmass at the bottom of the world, which he um, he got very interested in this uh, romantic notion of, of counterpoise, that the same amount of landmass had to be at the north and the southern parts of the equator to keep the earth spinning in perfect balance. This is a very enlightenment idea of proportion and balance. And um, and so he spent a lot of time advocating in the 1760s to, to get a ship, to go off down there, to find this thing, to prove the theory. Didn't quite work out. He discovered he wasn't in charge, and so had a at the docks, didn't he? And, and then this, yeah. this minor collier called James Cook got to lead the voyage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he was replaced <laughs> by uh, a very anonymous character from Yorkshire called James Cook, who later <laughs> became Captain Cook, um, changed the world. Uh, this is a massive subject. Definitely a subject for the future. We'll get you back, Peter. Yeah, you could say that the Dalrymples lit the fuse, if you like. Can I just say, can I, I mean, you, you've done your one one minute sketch of, of, of this Dalrymple. Can I do an even shorter sketch of all Dalrymples? <laughs> the Dalrymples, the Where's Wallies, of all human history. They're all over the bloody place. And can I just say, there are very few people, apart from you, William, who can have a forebear, who in a podcast about Francis Barber, and we've just talked about Samuel Johnson, knocks them both off the stage. So, you know, just, thank you for that. Thank you very much. Um, go, back while to, William back chokes, to the subject. While William yeah. chokes on his coffee. So, look, the, can, I, can I just read this quote um, from, you know, the lesser known Samuel Johnson man of letters? <laughs> <laughs> if I could squeeze that poor plays a minor role in the role in the life of Alexander <laughs> Make a little little space for this poor unknown man. Um look, he 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 once wrote this poem, okay? Has heaven reserved in pity to the poor, no pathless waste, no undiscovered shore, no secret island in the boundless main, no peaceful desert yet unclaimed by Spain. And when you look at that, I mean, sort of on the surface of it, it looks like a an anti-colonial treaties. Was he anti-colonial always, or was it the meeting with the man we're going to really talk about in this podcast, Francis Barber, that formulates his thoughts on colonialism? Brilliant question. So Johnson was always highly suspicious 
of the Whiggish enterprises of the 18th century. These things, this kind of the easy optimism, the bland acceptance of fashion that he thought was sweeping through society. He said the 18th century was a time, the Enlightenment was a time that everyone could see of huge progress. So there was material progress and there was the rise of political movements like democracy. You had things like the freedom of conscience, which had come from the 17th century. But more than anything, there was this great emphasis upon trade. And the money was flowing into Britain by the time Johnson was a young boy and as his life progressed and he came to London, he could see this firsthand. But what really worried Johnson was that while there was all this progress, he thought there was a separate question of moral progress. And he thought that Britain actually was not improving in its morals. And and a lot of the essays that he writes, you, you, I quite like that description of him as an essayist at the beginning. He actually saw himself as a moralist, someone who, who made people think about their moral duties. The 18th century is often seen by political scientists as the century of rights. So the right to liberty, the right to happiness, Jefferson and all the rest of it. Um, Johnson's philosophy was much more about duties, duties of one person to another. So when Johnson looked out on the streets of London, he saw the destitute, he saw prostitutes, he saw people who really had been left behind by often these great schemes. So while there was all the excitement of the projects, you know, you could go off and plant a colony at the far side of the world. Is that actually making people mm. happier? That was his question. And he came to the conclusion that it wasn't. There's a great um, moment in the 17. 50s, where Johnson is sent a map of North America, a new map of North America, which came along with this um, description of the, the landscape and, and so forth. And he reviewed it. And um, well, the purpose of, of the map, and we all know that maps are hugely political objects. They're made as, as objects of power to invite people to, to go and speculate and so forth. And, and Johnson's review is, is really interesting because the, the author of this map said, well, we could go to this particular region of the Ohio, which is going to be particularly rich for for silk weavers. You know, it's going to create lots of silk, which we can bring back to Britain. It's going to create more wealth. So this is a particular, this is a classic Whig um, progress project. Um, Johnson said, oh, wow, well, we can have more silk. So let's all go off to the Ohio. No worries. We can all have all the silk we need. And you can, you can see the irony that drips from the page. Yeah. We're so, I suppose, given as humans to stake so much on a whim. And we don't mm. actually think of the, the consequences of our actions. We think of Johnson today as much as we do, though, probably because he's a wit, isn't he? He has more sort of aphorisms than, than anyone else in 18th century England attributed to him. Uh, I think we think of him in that sense because of Boswell's um, Life of Johnson, which is the greatest biography of all time. Most people would agree just because of when it was written, who wrote it, the, the kind of content that went into it. Boswell did write with an agenda and he's presented this slightly cartoonish character of Johnson to us today, which we all love. I mean, it's, it is great, but it's a lot of my career as, as a writer has been trying to get past these characters with Captain Cook last time. I, I tried to get past that by never using the formulation Captain Cook in that Endeavour book, which is something I wanted to do. But in this, in this one, I wanted to go and find the real Johnson. And we have to remember that with Boswell, he only knew Johnson from 1763 onwards. There was a younger more insecure, quite tortured character. and um, Poorer and more marginal too. Yeah, you're very much on the fringes. I mean, we, we're... 
Speaking of Boswell, I sort of mentioned this. I mean, you may have forgotten when we did the Dalrymple tour, but, the, but Boswell, <laughs> a lot of the material, <laughs> oh, a, a, an important source for him was was this man, Francis Barber. Can we start with Barber's origin story, if you like? I mean, on those powerful maps, one of the most powerful places burgeoning with the potential for trade and wealth is Jamaica at this time. So tell us about the Jamaica, where Barber starts his life. Shall I tell you about Jamaica in the British mind? And I think this is what my best contribution will be about the way Britons think about the world at this point, because I think this will explain a few missing pieces of the puzzle, because you've you've covered slavery really well so far. But in the British mind, Jamaica in the early 18th century is a place of huge excitement. There's this idea that it's become a more civilised landscape. So where before it might have been rough and wild and sylvan, covered with trees, it has now been kind of reduced to these profitable plantations, which for, again, this is going back to this idea of the projector and progressive um, Whig philosophy, is, is a great thing. And people were at a remove from Jamaica, so people did not know what was happening over there. All that people knew is that it was creating a huge amount of wealth. These ships would go out and wealth would come back. Similar to India in the sense that at that time, that very few people who, no one could get there unless they had an East India Company passport. And so you, you only have East India Company people there and only getting occasional whistleblowers from within reporting from it. Yeah. I think that's that's very true, and um, and this is again why Barb is such an interesting character because he bridges these worlds. He sees the best of the Enlightenment and the worst. This is what makes his story so interesting. But he's born in Jamaica, on the northern coast of the island, um, on the Orange River Estate. He was one of about 150 slaves that were owned by a man called Colonel. Bathurst. We don't know a tremendous amount about his early life, but we um, we do know a bit. And I should say at this point, the best biographical work on Francis Barber has been done over the past decade. In particular, there's been a, a sparkling biography of him by a man called Michael Bundock, which um, I would recommend wholeheartedly to anyone who's listening to this. And with fragmented evidence, you have to do a lot of assembling. And through this process of assembling, we've worked out that his most likely name before he came to England, which I'll get on to in a moment, was Kwashi, which was a very typical name for a slave. So he was born maybe 1743, four, that kind of time. His name was probably Kwashi. We can't say for sure, but I'll tell you why we can probably say that with some certainty. Now, let me see. So when the Orange River estate was sold in 1749. The equipment, the sugar, the molasses, and the slaves were all sold, and it was put onto a big deed. And four of the 150 slaves were held back. One was described as a mulatto child of Collias. Then there was a man named Shadrach, and then there was a woman named Nancy. At this point, it might be useful if I say that some of the language... I'm going to quote from and use during the episode might seem rather brusque and to some people even offensive, but I'm trying to take the past on its own terms and to to describe it in that way. But please take that as a warning. The fourth one was just described as a Negro boy called Kwashi. Mm. And because of Francis Barber's skin colour and his age, a cross-tabulation of the two means that he could only have been one of those four. 
So we can say with, a, I suppose, a good degree of certainty that Quashi is actually Francis Barber's birth name. Right. Which, in a way, connects him to earlier histories because Quasiada is the Akande name for Sunday. So we can see a connection there to an earlier culture. And that's um, a, a very familiar name for slaves in this time. Can we assume that he was born a slave or was he, do you think that he was taken and brought as a, as a child? I think it's almost certain that he was born in Jamaica. And we can say that, I think, with a good degree of, of certainty. I should say, actually, Quasiada, I was, I was thinking the other day as a name, if you think of Quasi Quateng today, you can still see that echo of the Akan Day name Quasi in there. It's, it's echoing through history. It's really interesting. This is, this is in, in modern terms, a, a Ghanaian name. Yeah, Ghanaian name. So this is the best connection you have to the deeper histories. But I think all slaves, um, and I know you're going to get on to the story of Equiano later, yeah. have these multiple identities. So Equiano is obviously known as Gustavus Vassa for uh, much of his life. He a name later- he fights against at the beginning, a name he refuses to answer to until he's beaten into taking it. Yeah. Exactly. But there's there's other moments on different ships where he'll be given another name for a short period of time and he has to work with that. And so there's this layered identity that slaves have. And um, I think looking at slave names is very instructive. I just want to stick with Barbara for a second because um, we know very little because people with no power have very little ability to leave behind traces of themselves. Do we know about the condition on the Bathurst estate? Do we know what life would have been like for him in his early years? No, we don't. We know in general terms what life was like on the plantations of Jamaica. I know you've talked before about Thistlewood and his famous diary. Now, I'm not suggesting that all plantation owners acted in the same way that he did. But what we can say for absolutely sure is that Francis Barber grew up in a social environment where violence was the norm, where life changed very little, where small infractions were punished with great severity. Yeah, regular whippings being being a kind of everyday. Even to small children? I mean, some, yeah, does that, does that also take place? What is the treatment of small children who are born on these estates? That is very difficult to say. What, what, what small children did is they were also treated as workers. So from the age that they could walk, they would be going into the fields, gathering up weeds and rubbish in little baskets and, you know, working as part of these slave gangs that that used to to cross the fields. So he would have known, he would have been an active um, part of all of that plantation life. And I suppose... You know, I've got a I've got a six six year old boy myself, and if you think about all the formative experiences that he's had in his life so far up to this point, which have formed his personality, hopefully in a good way, all of that in Barber's case was plantation slavery. That's all he knew. Okay, so so that's his early life in Jamaica. Do we know more about how he came to Britain and when he came to Britain and what happens to him next? We do. We know this in um, more detail because the link is again with Johnson and Johnson is as well studied as Barber is not. And 
Johnson had a friend who was one of his closest friends called Dr. Bathurst. And he makes this pronouncement, um, I think, to Boswell. I think this appears in Boswell, that Boswell, uh, that Bathurst was the man that he loved more than any other. He was um, a young doctor of a Relation of Colonel Bathurst? I mean, are they, are they family? He was the son, yeah. The so son. he was the ah, son. Okay. And Bathurst talked about his childhood because he'd been brought up on the plantation on the Orange River in Jamaica. And he'd been so disgusted by what he'd seen that he'd left Jamaica as soon as he could. He came to Peterhouse in Cambridge where he studied. He became a medical doctor, but he was a quite an ill-starred character and never really found a settled profession. But what he did do, he talked to Johnson about the execrable region of Jamaica. And so here again, I mean... Willie, you spoke before about whistleblowers. I think we can look at this Richard Bathurst as a bit of a whistleblower in those terms because his father owned the plantation. He felt implicated in it because it was his family's plantation. He got away, but he had to keep going back. And in 1749, there's this moment where the plantation collapses and Bathurst, rather than being sad that his family's wealth is being dissipated and is, is gone, actually celebrates because he says, this is a great thing because no longer are my family and going to be under the temptation of keeping slaves. The next year, 1750, his father, Colonel Bathurst, arrives in England, and with him is a little black boy called Francis Barber. So he, oh, the name is, so is he still Quashi, or is he, when does he become Francis Barber? Is it something on the voyage, like with Equiano, where he's renamed on, on the sea? I suppose I didn't explain that very well, actually. What, yeah. He becomes Francis Barber very shortly after he arrives in London. So I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll leave him as Quashi on the voyage. But something very significant happens after he arrives in Britain. And this is that he is baptised. He's taken to a church and he emerges from that ceremony with a new name, a new identity. He's a member of the Church of England. So there's all sorts of questions which loom large here. Why did Colonel Bathurst bring one slave out of 150 back with him across the Atlantic? Why did he then take him into a church? I mean, I should point out here that churches were not a consideration for the slaves on the plantations in Jamaica. There was, there was no idea of them having souls that need saving. They were seen as beyond, I mean, it's again, it's an insight into how they were perceived by the plantation owners. They were not not seen as equals. And Michael Bonduck suggests that maybe Kwasi or Kwashi was a household slave rather than one working in the plantations if, if he was the one that was brought back. Is that a likely supposition, do you think? Quite possibly. The, the honest answer is we don't know. There may well have been some incidents and uh, battered felt beholden. Maybe he was discharging a promise to someone. Maybe Francis had some kind of favourite status. We we have to leave that one as an unknown. Now, wait a minute. I'm not going to leave it because <laughs> favourite status, being baptised, being kept in the house. I mean, all of this suggests, and tell me if this is madly wrong, that you know he is very definitely Colonel Bathurst's son. What does it say to you? which is another possibility. We, we simply have to just put it there in the list of options, I suppose. We can't know. But what I suppose you're guessing at here is, what is the motive? And there's this really interesting side point here, which actually to 
Kwashi or Barber or however we'll term him at this point, is of importance. He's still young, but among slaves in particular at this time, there's a belief that baptism equals freedom. Mm. Now, legally, it doesn't. This has been tested in English law, and it was something that greatly worried slave owners at the time because, you know, they might escape, run off to the church, get baptized, and they've lost property. But it's still a significant step. But not all slave owners would necessarily favoritize their children, bizarrely, as it may seem to us. In the Thistlewood Diaries, again, there's one of Thistlewood's children, isn't there, who, who gets treated much like anyone else in the fields? Yeah, I mean, this is it's, it's just such a difficult area for us to go into as historians, this interrelationship between um, the slaves themselves and the slaves and the masters. We do not know much about Colonel Batters' character. We know more about his son, Richard, who seems to have this social conscience. But what his relationship with Kwashi, I think that that really has to remain a great puzzle. Well, look, I think it's a, it's a really good time to take a break. So the young Kwashi has now come to England. He's now been baptised. He is now Francis Barber, which is the name that will make him in some ways immortal in other ways, not immortal enough, because thanks to you, Peter, we're, we're getting to talk about him. Join us after the break when we find out what happens to the newly baptized Francis Barber. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. So we are talking in this episode of Empire about Francis Barber. Um, and it's an extraordinary story that has so far taken us from the plantations of Jamaica to the shores of Great Britain, where a young boy called Kwashi has been baptised as Francis Barber. And at this point, he gets sent to Rishi Sunak's constituency in a rather improbable moment. He's sent up to the North Riding of Yorkshire, to the village of Barton near Richmond. What's going on there? Well, yeah, it's quite a long way to... I, I think we have these ideas of do the boys' hall and uh, Yorkshire boarding schools from Dickens and children getting sent away. I, I went to a Dickensian Yorkshire boarding school. I have it branded on my soul. A very cold place to spend the winter is the North Riding of Yorkshire, I can tell you, in the moors. Yeah, and probably made all the more of a contrast when you've recently arrived from Jamaica. So if yeah. you can imagine for a moment what this um, experience must have been like for a young boy of eight or nine, I suppose one thing we've not really spoken about at this point is that he's decisively been taken away from any parents that he had so um, or any siblings indeed. So he's very alone in the world and um, it's still very, very young, just not not yet 10 perhaps. And Colonel Bathurst sends him up to Yorkshire to this school. And um, again, we're, we're left with these puzzles of motive. What's going on here? He's had him baptised. He's sending him off for, for some rudimentary education at least. I mean, if you were to be really charitable, you could say that he's trying to integrate him into British society. Mm. If you were not, you could say he's trying to get him out of the way because he's some sort of embarrassment. I don't know. Well, I mean, whichever way it is, I can't imagine it would be easy in Richmond, Yorkshire, for one eight-year-old. I kind of just again, it's heartbreaking. Got an eight-year-old, can't bear this thought. But of a, a what, the only black face, or was he the only black face? I mean, what was it like in 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 Yorkshire, in, in Richmond at the time? Even today, there's not many black faces in Richmond. Well, that's the, that's the exact. I saw when I was writing the book, I had this conversation with my editor, and they they pointed out to me that even today, Richmond is not a bastion of racial diversity. Multiculturalism, yeah. possibly the barracks. The barracks at Richmond might have. He he's moved in um, not just across the Atlantic Ocean, but he's moved from a world which was full of black people that looked like him to a world completely full of white people. So he's conspicuous. Everywhere he goes, he must have attracted a huge amount of attention. And again, I mean, if you add all of these things up together, you have the, the idea of the displacement, the dehumanization of the slavery that he's witnessed, the disorientation of an Atlantic crossing. One, I think we always have to look for parallel experiences here to to get inside the mind of these people. I remember in, in the Endeavour book writing about Tupaya, who was a, a, a Polynesian star navigator who arrived in Batavia and just going mad when he was confronted with all of this technology and he ran around wild. It was, it was time travelling. It's a wonderful passage in your book. Yeah. And I think Barber must have, I suppose, been caught between awe and terror. Okay. So, I mean, he, he's, he's learning how to read and write. He's learning how to become literate, which is unusual for, for a young black boy in Britain at that time. Where does his path cross with the man of letters? He's learning his letters, the man of letters, Samuel Johnson. What is, what is the trajectory of that? Because Johnson isn't in Yorkshire. He's not in Richmond. So what happens here? So this is the extraordinary moment, I suppose, in Barber's story. Until now, the 
you could always say there were there were many plantation owners who came back to Britain and brought a slave with them. They, you know, this was not unheard of, and the status of the slave might be strange, but they would follow them round in London. Benjamin Franklin, for example, when he comes across from America in 1757, brings two slaves to serve him in London. There's a Merchant Ivory film about about Franklin at that period, isn't there? With his two slave slave girls, I think they are, aren't they? No, they're, they're both they're both male. But they uh, there's a really interesting story about them, which I might return to in a bit. But but what happens to Barber in 1752? Um, so this is two years after he's arrived in um, in in Britain is just extraordinary because Johnson at this point is working on this colossal project, the dictionary. But this is the thing we all know him for. He's out of time, he's out of money, he's living in this big house in Gough Square just off Fleet Street. And he's he's having a lot of domestic problems because his wife, who who was older than him, quite considerably older than him, has become ill. And in the March of 1752, she dies. Johnson is thrown into agonies of um, grief. One of his friends is Richard Bathurst, you might remember earlier. And by this point, Francis has arrived back from Yorkshire. He's in London with Richard Bathurst. And Bathurst comes up with a plan. The idea is that maybe, you know, I suppose we could all empathise with this idea that when someone is is shrouded in grief, sometimes a change of atmosphere is a really good thing for them. So the idea which is hatched for Johnson is, well, let's give Francis to Sam Johnson and perhaps he will charge his spirits up in some way. As a, as a slave? I mean, like gift him as a slave to Johnson? Well, here we're into ambiguities of um, both legal ambiguities and practical ones, because Johnson would not have understood the relationship as being that of of a slave. Um, and we can say that with a lot of confidence because of the kind of character that Johnson was. Johnson saw Barber more as part of his extended family as a servant or as a young boy in need, perhaps. How Barber saw the arrangement is quite different because the only thing he'd known in his life was being owned by someone else. We get this bewildering sequence of events. He's been in Barton, he's been schooled in Yorkshire, and now he's given to this quite I don't know even where to begin with Johnson. He's one of the most uh, eccentric characters you could imagine. Very tall. He's blind in one eye. He's scarred with scrofula. Um, he shouts and he smiles and he rolls down hills. He's just a... In, in, in contemporary medical language, some people speculate he may have had Tourette's syndrome. Isn't that right? Well, I don't know. I think these kind of diagnoses on the past are difficult. The great tragedy of Johnson's young life is that he had to drop out of Oxford University without taking his degree. And and I mean, he was plunged into the depths of depression after this. He thought his life had been a failure. And um, yeah, this is another complicated area I can't get into. But afterwards, he started to manifest these tics. And again, in Boswell, they're, they're seen as part of his um, character, his, I suppose, eccentricities. And he Anyone who met him for the first time, I mean, there's an interesting description of Hogarth meeting him for the first time and thinking that he was an idiot because he was just like kind of convulsed all the time. Um, but yeah, Johnson had some some serious trauma that he was trying to deal with. Um, so again, what Barber made of all of this and cast into this household, which was um, full of grief as well. 
grief and also, I mean, he must have thought he was slightly with a madman. There's another very lovely portrait of Johnson at this time, which I, which I think is, um, I think it's quite charming, but it's also very graphic. Which is a, a friend of his, Beauclerk, is is walking home. You know this one. He's walking home. It's the early hours of the morning. They're all drunk as lords, and uh, they've got this idea of let's wake up Johnson. Let's take him on a pub crawl. <laughs> You know the the most grumpy man in in Britain at this time. You know, with with good reason, as you say. So they rap violently on Johnson's door to say, "Look, come on out, come on out with us." Johnson appears in his nightshirt with a little black wig on top of his head and a poker, and a in, poker his hand. in his hand. <laughs> and he said, "And a poker in his hand." And uh, and when he sees it, it's his friends who say, "Hey, Johnson, come out with us, Samuel, Samuel, Sammy, Sam, come on." And he just says. What is it, you dogs? I'll have a frisk with you. And then waves his poker at them. So, I mean, you know, this is the house that Barbara is entering. If I may take that story further, it progresses from the poker being waved out of the window all the way through London. This is a kind of, I I don't know, Jack Grealish. You know, they just just go go mad. They end up um, having breakfast at Billingsgate, which sounds like an 18th century movie. And, um, yeah, Johnson, everyone knew this about Johnson. He was a very serious brave character who can be sunk in in, in dejection but if you um if you could rouse his spirit somehow he had more childlike playfulness than than just about anyone Bundock says that at this point he looks like a boxer past his prime that he's this sort of quite formidable physical presence <laughs> oh yeah well there's lots of stories of him um squaring up to the robbers and the footpads and you know they kind of jump out at johnson and they soon run away when they, when they see him he is <laughs> He is a formidable, overbearing present, dogmatic, yeah. and um, in conversation as well as, as physically. In Blackadder, he's played by Robbie Coltrane. <laughs> Robbie Coltrane. We, we have that huge... <laughs> Brilliantly, I know. He leaves sausage out of the dictionary, doesn't he? That's right. So, so, look, does he ever, at this stage, I mean, on all the things that he wrote, does he ever say, actually, I've got now a new black boy in my household, his name is Francis Barber? When do we first hear Francis Barber creep into, into the writing of Johnson, or does he not at all? Well, again, we turn to Boswell at this point because Boswell's chronicle of his life is so full. And you see um, the references from this point forward to Frank, which is generally how Boswell refers to Barber. And um, yeah, I I think in, in Johnson's own work, he's there in letters. He often mentions um, Barber, but this is from later on. Maybe there's a a moment later on in the 1750s, but specifically in the 1770s, he's, he talks all about Barber in his letters, but again, it's only in passing, like give my love to Francis. I hope Francis is well, things like that. That's nice. That's really nice. Actually. Um, The household though, I, I, I don't think we've done it justice because is it true? It bunch. is pretty much a madhouse. You've got a you've got a blind housekeeper who Johnson keeps on. <laughs> uh, you've got a visiting physician who is paralytically drunk most of the time. I mean, what, what do we know about the the circumstances and the wildness of of the Johnson Shay Johnson? I mean, that actually works, doesn't it? Shay Johnson, how wild is it at the Johnson residence? Take that as you will in a contemporary or ancient way. What's it like? Well, you can still visit Gough Square today, if you like. It's just, um, it's one of the great surviving buildings um, of that area because, of course, it was carpet bombed by the Luftwaffe in, in the Blitz and you used to be able to see all the way down to St Paul's with without interruption. But you... Somehow they missed Gough Square, and uh, and it stands proudly still. And you can, 
get a sense of what the household was like by looking at the architecture. But the people inside it, yeah, were were uh, they were described um, as being people out of the common run of life, which is a wonderful eighteenth <laughs> century expression. So there was Anna Williams, who was um, the blind housekeeper. So she was. Um, often in, in conflict with uh, Francis Barr, but they didn't particularly get on. There was Levitt, who was the, um, he was a practitioner of physic among the lower types, I think uh, Johnson <laughs> referred to him. They used to go on his wandering rounds and um, one of these 18th century characters, again, who really never made much money. And Johnson said he was one of the few people who was ever drunk through motives of temperance because his patients often wouldn't be able to pay him for his work and they'd pay him in kind with a little bit of gin or something like that yeah and so he'd turn up rather drunk and so Levitt was very silent Anna Williams was um I suppose if you know her life it's 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 understandable she was quite short-tempered Francis this young boy bewildered I suppose is the best way to explain him and Johnson in the middle of them all carrying on and there was a revolving cast of others who came in and out all the time and, and Johnson himself often depressed. I mean, he would have periods when he would sink uh, uh, very low. Absolutely, yeah. He um, famously used that term "black dog," which lots of people think of as a Churchillian term. Is that him originally? He came. I thought that was Churchill. Gosh. No, so you can find that term. And he, I mean, he was uh, very complex. I mean, one of the great studies of, of Johnson, I always think, is Walter Jackson Bates' um, Life of Samuel Johnson, one of the great biographies of the 20th century. And he, he portrays Johnson as, as this heroic figure battling against pretty severe mental illness throughout his life. And um, so I, I think one of, the, one of the nice things about 1752, which is a real year of crisis for Johnson, he's behind on the dictionary, he hasn't got any money, his wife has just died. But out of the death of his wife, he begins this new relationship with Francis, which is like the closest to a father-son relationship he will ever have. So it's a strange twist of fate. What does Frank do for him? I, I, I kind of like the idea of little Frank. I, I mean, that, that's warmth to me. That's kind of, that's nice. I'm not changing your name. This, this is the name you've come to me with, but I'd say it's a, it's a sweet diminutive. Well, he's around 10, I suppose, when it's he first tiny. arrives. So nine, boy. 10. Yeah. And the jobs he does are the, the running of errands, the passing of messages. His, uh, his Johnson's printer was just around the corner. William, Strawn. So you can imagine that um, that Francis would be would be going around there with copy for the dictionary, things like this. But there is, I mean, Johnson makes several attempts to continue young Frank's schooling. I'm I'm picking up on your cue there. It's, it's and, cute though, isn't it? I like it. Yeah. yeah and so I think that's very. Um, very suggestive, again, that he sees Barbara as someone who has p potential to improve. And we could talk about attitudes towards race and um, I suppose the, the philosophy of, of what British people thought about black people in a moment. But it's very significant that Johnson makes that decision. We, I mean, we've talked before about how almost no one in Britain in the 1750s is complaining at all about plantation slavery. Does that translate into vilely racist attitudes on the streets of London? And is Samuel Johnson's benevolent attitude unusual or even very, very unusual? So Johnson was always known for his compassion to people, you know, he's one of these people who wouldn't turn someone away and, you know, he wasn't just going to walk on by, if we can put it in those terms. So attitudes towards race, so interesting today. And I think we might as well 
look at this squarely now. There, for your listeners, there's two real big ways that people thought about race in, say, 1750. The first of them you can broadly term the degeneracy theory. Okay, and both of these are within the, the wider, broader framework of Christian um, uh, worldview. Okay, but the degeneracy theory is there's been a single act of creation, but some races of people have sunk due to social and environmental factors, and you can see that in in the writing of the time, people say, well, the sun makes people lazy, for example. That's prevalent everywhere, these these kind of things. I'd say that was the most popular attitude that you would come across at this time. But there is a more virulent form of racism, which is which is growing at the time, which is known as the, um, the polygenesis or the polygenesis theory, depending on how you pronounce it, which is that there's been separate acts of creation to create different types of being. And this is very dangerous. David Hume is one person who at least flirts with this idea. So Hume, the the famed Enlightenment philosopher. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so this is the idea that, and I should also point out that it's always the white Britons who are at the top of the pyramid, if you if you like, in in these conceptions of the world. But um, in this polygenesis, if you like, black people have been made by a different act of creation, and they've been made out of poorer materials than the white people lesser clay children of a lesser clay somehow exactly and so therefore there's no they don't have the potential to progress so you wouldn't educate them do you see what i mean so there's there's a connection here with what happens to francis barber because johnson's making um a statement here he's being really radical and what he's done also is he's given a degree of freedom to a boy who has never known any. So, you know, running, I'm just thinking of the, the idea, the notion of a 10-year-old boy running to the printers, running back, doing errands in a city, being free to wander mm. without being manacled, shackled, monitored. He's free to move, which is amazing. Exactly. And not free to move anywhere, free to move around Fleet Street and the Strand. These are the most exciting, exciting places. Exactly, can, the place to be. Yeah, yeah these are, this is the kind of the, the most exciting streets in Britain, if perhaps not in the Western world at this point. I mean, anyone would like a stroll along Fleet Street. And this is so this is what. When a man is bored of London, he's bored of the world. This is true. And this was Barber's new life. So he must have been intoxicated. And we know that he did forge a very, very deep emotional bond with Johnson. They uh, they were very close. Peter, can we, I mean, we've, we've talked um, at, at such great length and there's so much more to talk about because we haven't even started on Francis, little Frank, Francis Barber's um, relationship with the big work, Johnson's big work and the dictionary. So uh, join us again on Thursday. We're going to pick this up uh, and we're going to find out what happens to this boy with his eyes wide open in so many ways with one of the most exciting benefactors that England has ever had to offer. We should say that Peter has an absolutely fantastic book out on this topic called Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Happiness, Britain, the American Dream, which will be out next week. But before that, we've got the second part of this episode coming out on Thursday. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnand. And goodbye from me, William Durrumpel. 